I'm going to pray. God, I want to thank you for you being you. Thank you for, just thank you. Uh, thank you just for everything. Thank you. And Lord, this morning I pray as we dig into Jonah one last time that the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So we are coming to an end in the book of Jonah. This is the fastest sermon series that I have ever done. Seven weeks it only has taken to go through this book. First Peter took 20-something weeks. The Gospel of John took like 63 weeks. Seven weeks which is a very biblical number, like God created stuff in seven days. And so I'm feeling really good about this. We're going to look at the last six verses in the book. And, and there's a story in and of itself that's going on in these last verses. It's, it's a God story. It's a story as God works. I don't know if he's working with his prophet, but he's definitely, definitely working on his prophet. And, 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 and I think, because see, Jonah, Jonah's in trouble. At this point in chapter 4, Jonah's the one that needs to repent. Jonah is the one that needs to believe God and, and live. It's kind of like what Jeremiah talked about, that he needs to come to an understanding that he needs to know who God is, what God is like, what's his character, what's in God's heart. And so these last six verses really kind of just bring the story to a unconclusion, as we're going to see. And we're going to kind of flesh through and wrestle with them, and then we're going to end on the, the last one or two, and that's kind of going to be the springboard for my rant this morning. So, Wes, if we can go to the slide. Chapter 4, we'll start in verse 5. Jonah went out and sat down at the place east of the city, there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the gourd so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I am so angry, I wish I were dead. So here's Jonah. This is like, it's coming to a climax. It's coming to a conclusion. And he just hightails it out of the city and he sits down and he waits. He does nothing to help these people. He does nothing to help them in their act of repentance. He does nothing to help them come closer to God or deepen their relationship with him. He just sits there and he's waiting. And I'm sure he's hoping that God is going to change his mind and destroy everybody and everything in the city. And so while he's sitting there, he makes himself a shelter. And in the Hebrew, the name or the word for shelter is uh, sukkah. Say it, sukkah. Very good. That's Hebrew for shelter. And that shelter would have been made or created during a festival called Sukkoth. Say Sukkoth. 
that's the, te- that's the festival of booths. It's back in Deuteronomy when God's given all these cool festivals, actually just cool parties that he wants his nation to take part in to remember his goodness. Now, Sukkoth is a, a festival of pilgrimage. That means that the Jews will have to travel to Jerusalem to take part in this. And they will build these sukkahs, these little shelters, and they will live in them while they party down and celebrate what God is doing or what God has done for them. The the whole festival is to remember that at one time, Israel had no home. In fact, they didn't even have homes. They lived in tents. They, they they, They wandered through the wilderness. And then every seventh year during this festival, the entire law... The, the, the law of the Lord was read in public to the people as a reminder, as a call for them to come back to obedience to the things of God. It was a way that the, the Lord's law was passed down from generation to generation. Now, what I find very interesting here is that, that the Hebrew word for shelter is this, is this word called sukkah. It's, it's, it's part of the festival. It's something that they would have made specifically for this festival of booths. And there's a very interesting command from the Lord during the festival. The Israel was called during this time to welcome the Gentiles into their city. Welcome the Gentile into their gates. They were to welcome foreigners and strangers. And they were called to party with them, to celebrate the goodness of God with people that were not God's people. This is what his call was for them. During this festival, you are to welcome the strangers, bring them in, and you are to celebrate me with them. And so here we have the prophet of God, Jonah, angry because God is pouring out his blessings upon a very large city of Gentiles, Jonah thinks the city should be destroyed and everyone in it. Just wipe them all out. They're terrible, terrible people, those Ninevites. And he does it sitting under a symbol of a festival that is supposed to welcome in the very people that Jonah wants to see destroyed. Again, we find Jonah fighting against the Lord God himself. And if Jonah wins, It's not going to fare well for him. Now, God is moving in this story and he's going to intervene. He provides a plant just like he provided the fish, just like he will provide a worm, just like he will provide the wind. And this plant grows and it gives shade over Jonah. And and the reason why he's happy about the shade is because the, the roof of his shelter was made specifically so it wasn't fully finished. Because at night, as the Jewish people would sleep, they would look up through the roof and see the stars again as a remembrance of the majesty of God and where he has taken them. And so we can see that it's definitely the shelter for this festival. And for the first time in this whole story, four chapters, Jonah's story, Jonah is really happy. I mean, he's happy now. God has stepped in and he's intervened in the physical. He's given him this shady plant. And, and now his, his, his physical condition 
has gotten much better, and he's pretty happy. But then God is going to send a worm, and the worm's going to get into the plant, and it's going to kill the plant, and then he's going to send a scorching wind, and that's just not a good thing when the scorching wind comes from the east. But all three of these things, the plant, the worm, and the wind, they, they are, they're, they're proof of the love of God. These are blessings to Jonah. Even though sometimes God's blessings seem harsh or we don't understand them, they're always rooted in the love of God. I feel like a little, <clears throat> God, I'm okay. They're rooted in God's love. And so the worm kills the plant and the east wind comes. And it's, and it's just like biblically east wind, not a good thing, right? And the sun is on his head. And, and I was thinking through this. If Jonah's hairstyle resembles anything of mine, I feel for this guy because now he is in misery. He is bummed out. And he's to the point where, you know, he just wants to die. Again, we see him. He's like, you know, I just, I just want to die. Now, the first time he said this, it was kind of like uh, very overdramatic and manipulative, kind of like, kind of like you know, your teenage son or daughter telling you, if you don't let me go to this party, I'm just going to die, you know, that, that kind of thing. But now, Jonah is only speaking to himself. He's only speaking to his very soul, and there's a sincerity in his words. Jonah really wishes that he would die, and God is going to answer him again. Dude, really? Is it really right for you to to uh, to want to die and be and be sad over this plant that I sent you? I mean, I mean, really? And finally, finally, the prophet answers God. He says, "Yes, it is. It is right for me to be angry." Finally, Jonah uh, confesses that he is angry with God, and he just blurts it out. And, it be, and he gets in touch with maybe his inner anger. Maybe he realizes that, wow, maybe, maybe I really am upset with God about this whole thing. But it's at this point that now the Lord can begin to work in Jonah. It's at this point where the door has been opened and God can step in and try to help his prophet understand himself just a little bit better. And this is what the Lord will say to him. Next slide, Wes. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And that's it. That's the end of the story. There's no more. There's no conclusion. There's no more of the story. There's just, it just lets us kind of hang right there. If you were in a movie theater and the ending went like this, you'd be throwing popcorn at the screen because this is not the way it's supposed to end. But this is the way God lets it, God lets it hang there. We don't know what happens to Jonah, though many scholars believe that years that that he did come to incenses and years and years later he finally told his story because there's things in the story like there was nobody there with him in the belly of the fish explain you know hearing his prayer to god so so they believe that maybe jonah did come to his senses and he did write this book but for us we have to take the text where it lies and there's there's nothing it lets us hang there but maybe Maybe the end of this story is really the beginning to a different story, a story for us. 
Maybe the ending of this story is the beginning of our search into our own hearts. And we take the stuff in our own hearts and admit what's in there and just hold that up to the light of God and the things that are in God's heart. God says to Jonah, you know what? You're worried about a plant. You're worried that, that this plant that you didn't, you, didn't even, you didn't even put the seed in the ground, you didn't care for it, you didn't make it grow, and, and, you're, and, you, and you're sad because it's died? How do you think I feel? How do you think I feel, Joan, about 120,000 people that don't know their right hand from their left? And some would say that that means that, that God is only talking about the children of the city. 120,000 children. How do you think I feel about them? And then, then he has this, God says this very random thing at first, if you think about it, and it almost doesn't make sense. He goes, and also many animals. Okay, Jonah's worried about the plant. The plant dies. He wants to die. God's like, shouldn't I have more concern about 120,000 people and many animals? That is an amazing picture of the heart of God and many animals. You see, his plan for redemption is huge. It's all-encompassing. He is going to renew. God is going to renew all things. And he wants Jonah, and I believe he wants us to understand that, that he is going to make all things new. God is on mission to save, renew everything, even animals. All of creation will be renewed. And that's why we, us, his people, that's why being a Christian is just not about you getting into heaven. There's more to it. God's desire for the Christian, God's desire for his church is to bring heaven to this world, to bring healing, to bring transformation, to bring the good news of Jesus Christ, to share and to live the story of grace and mercy and repentance and peace in Jesus. God is continually at work and he's transforming everything. And he and his desire is to use his people. His desire is to use, dare I say, his church. You know, that, that hard-headed, reluctant, stubborn, prideful group of people that we can be. He desires to use us. And that act of grace and mercy shown to us shows us that God wants to save Christians as much as God wants to sanctify his church as much as he wants to save the world. How freeing is that? We don't have to manufacture the work of God. You don't have to come up with your own idea and your own plan. You don't have to just kind of frantically look for something and get it started. Because all we need to do is find where God is already working and join him in his work. Jonah's job was not to be religious. Jonah's job was, he was called to be a person of God in the world. He's a Ninevite. That's what God called him to be. Our job as the church is not to be religious. 
Our job as the church is not to do church. We are called to be the people of God in the world. We are called to be the exact opposite of what Jonah was. We are called to offer hope, like Jesus' hope, real hope. We're called to live and to show grace and mercy. Jesus' grace and mercy. We are called to live a very obvious sacrificial life for others. That's what we're called to. And by doing that, we reflect back the heart of God into the world. This is the heart, this is who God is, and it runs through this entire story that he's calling his people to be his people in the world. You know what that means? That means you are a person of God at your job. You are a person of God in your family. You are a person of God in your neighborhood. You're a person of God in Walmart. You're a person of God in Stop and Shop. You know when that person cut you off? You know you were headed for that line first, but you're called to be a person of God. You're called to be a person of God to that customer service associate associate that didn't give you such great customer service. You are called to be a person of God even to that person. See, the world needs Jesus' followers to be involved in healing the brokenness that sin has brought into this world. And by doing that, again, by doing that, we reflect the heart of God that's within us back into the world. We are called to partner with him on the mission that he is already on. But see, there's this, there's this tension that takes place in church world. And I've seen it and, and I've, I've experienced it. And so we, we have this idea that the word of God, and we'll just say the Bible right now, this, this is our authoritative word of God, okay? This, this is the Holy Scripture. This is what we read, um, well, what you should be reading anyway, uh, to, to, as, as a Christian. And so we, we take this book and we say that this, this collection of sacred writings, this is for God's people. This is for the people of God, right? And, and it goes through, and it tells us stories about God, and it tells us stories about how he intervenes and how he, he works with his people. And so sometimes it becomes this, um, it instructs us on how we should live our lives as a Christian, especially in the New Testament, how we should live. And so we, it almost becomes this lesson plan for us so that we can be good, godly, moral Christians, and hear me, hear me when I say this. It, it is that, in, in a sense. It, it, it is, I mean, we can learn how to live our lives. It is that. But if that's all it is to you, then you are missing a huge part of the Word of God because the Bible is also the story of God as He reveals Himself to His people, as He reveals His character, as He reveals His heart. And by understanding that, we understand the mission that he is on. And if we understand his mission, then we begin to understand how he calls us into his mission. Not our own, not our own plan, but God's plan, his mission. Maybe we can say it this way. The Bible is our revelation of God to act as our guide as we are on mission with him. It's about redemption. It's about healing about restoring it's the scandalous story of how god worked in the hearts of people that are not yet his people because that's our story before you were before you were considered a child of god before you followed jesus guess what you didn't manufacture that yourself 
It wasn't because that person was really good at defending the Bible, defending against your, your, your arguments against it. It was because the Holy Spirit of God was at work in your life already, wooing you, pushing you, pulling you, guiding you, and finally bringing you to that realization that Jesus is the way. Before you became a friend of God, you were his enemy, and yet he was still at work in your life. Scandalous redemption of the love of God. He's not limited by what we believe by what we don't believe. He's not limited by what we do or what we don't do. Look at Jonah's story. God says, hey, Jonah, I want you to go. I want you to go to these people. They're really bad people. I want you to give them a message. And Jonah says, yeah, not so much. And Jonah runs, and he gets on a ship, and he gets thrown over the ship. He gets eaten by a fish. He gets puked up on the shore by the fish. Then he reluctantly obeys. And then, once he sees what God's going to do, he starts to pout, and he starts to get angry because how dare God treat, treat people that are enemies of Israel How dare he treat these pagans with love and mercy and grace? God, or Jonah didn't care about them. But God obviously does care about them. And the whole story right to the end, especially these last verses, he's reminding us of something that's very important. That God's redemptive mission extends even to That God's redemptive mission extends even to his enemies. Not so that we get to live better. Not so that we're not persecuted or you're not picked on as a Christian. No, because people matter to him. People matter to him. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees one day. And uh, Jesus says, yeah, you know what? Guess what? Huh? Yeah, there's, there's these people who aren't children of Abraham. Guess they're going to have a place at the table in the kingdom of God. And the Pharisees lost their minds. They freaked out. How can that happen? We are God's chosen people, not them. And Jesus says, oh, nay, nay. There's going to be people. There's going to be people that are not, that you would not consider descendants of Abraham. And they will sit at the table in the kingdom of God. God continues through Jesus what he has been up to since the beginning. Scandalous redemption. John chapter 3, there's a story of of another Pharisee that Jesus is speaking to. This Pharisee's name is is Nicodemus. He says, yo, Nicky, let me tell you something. See, God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's a good verse, huh? Remember that verse? That's a good one, right? And and for a Pharisee, Nicodemus would have been like, wait, wait, wait. It would, have, it would have not clicked in his head to think that God so loved the world. Maybe God so loved the Jews or God so loved his, his people. Yeah, that, that he can get his mind around. And sometimes we in church world, we, we have this idea that, okay, for God so loves his church. I mean, that's very easy for us to accept and get behind. But that's not what Jesus said. God so loved the world. But wait a minute, there's, there's bad, smelly people in the world. And they, they say bad things, and they do bad things. And some of them watch Jersey Shore. I mean, how can God ever forgive that? But it's God so loved the world. He has all of creation in his property. He has every person in his sight, even the animals. Even the animals. See, the kingdom of God is not our 
it's, it's, it's not our reward for the church. It's like, oh, look, church, you're doing well. Here's my, here's my kingdom. No, no, no. The kingdom of, of God is a gift that's being offered to the entire creation. But once again, we, got, we have this, there's, there's this tension that can, that can come up through this. You ever hear of the social gospel? It's this idea that, um, you know, we have to really focus on showing people love and grace and mercy and, um, you know, serving them and, and fighting for justice and all those things. And those, those are the things of God. I mean, that's the heart of God right there. But sometimes in the social gospel, they, they forget something. They forget to mention something. They forget to mention, you know, Jesus. They forget to mention uh, repentance. They forget to mention the grace of the cross. They don't give the full story sometimes. But then on the flip side, you have mainline evangelical world, and they are defenders of capital T truth. And they will go up against and stand firm against any and all comers who want to argue or push against truth, which, which is not necessarily a bad thing either. But if our sole focus is on being right, being correct, that just looks arrogant to people outside of these walls, especially when there's no Jesus action mixed in with that. God's mission, and therefore our mission, is to bring love, truth, package. We're to bring love and truth as, as one thing, because that's the heart of God. I mean, that's who God is. God is truth. God is love. Not that he invented it or he created it or he, he talks about it or he's really good at doing it. God is truth and God is love. And if we serve people and love them and give them everything that they need, but we don't share Jesus, we actually do them an injustice. And if we just argue the truth and tell them about Jesus, yet do nothing for their human condition, then we've done them an injustice. They're not getting everything that's in God's heart. There's a, there's a story, Genesis chapter 1, right? God's creating, blah, blah, blah. You know the story, and he goes on, and everything is good, and it's looking good, and he's kicking back, and he's looking, hey, Jesus, this is good. I'm duck-billed platypus. Woo-hoo. And so he, he's working through that whole thing, and then he gets to this point, and he says, let us make mankind in our image. Let us, let us make people in our image. And do you know what that means? Do you really know what that means? That means people matter to God because oh, we got like babies just melting down out there. All the moms are like, pew, pew, pew. People matter to God because they are made in his image, period. Let me make sure you understand that. People matter to God. Because they are made in his image, period. You know that person that aggravates you? Yeah, created in his image. You know Uncle Stan? You just can't stand Uncle Stan? You know? He's an atheist, but he's not really because he just wants to poke fun at you because you're a Christian. Made in God's image. Everyone is made in God's image. That person that cuts you off and then flips you the bird? Made in God's, made in God's image. Everyone is made in God's image image and so all people matter to God and should matter to us and people deserve to be blessed 
just because we could. People deserve to be blessed just because they're people. And since we've captured God's heart, humanity has captured his heart. He desperately wants to restore our relationship back to him. And not only that, but he wants to restore the benefits of that relationship with him. Good food and water and relationships and health and meaningful work and peace and security. All of these things that existed in the garden before the fall. God wants to move us back to that place. Jesus came to give that life and to give it in abundance. And he he stood firm against the things that would rob and take away that life. Our human experience, we could say uh, political, social, economic, cultural, uh, psychological, physical, even spiritual, all of that, that can rob us of the life. That's part of our human experience. And and, and if, if left untreated with the love and mercy and grace of Christ and the reconciliation of Jesus us back to God, that can rob us of life. But those people who decide that they will be on mission, see, God's already involved in all that stuff. God's involved in the political scene, and God's involved in the social scene, and the economic scene, and the cultural, psychological, physical scene. He's all, he's all over that. He's moving, and he's working. And the people of God need to join him in that mission as he as he's bringing everything back into harmony with him. That's what he calls us to do. Not to just go figure out what we want to do by ourselves and, and think about, let, let's, 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 uh, let's create something new. God, there's no new to God. He knows everything, and he's at work everywhere. And he's calling and drawing the Christian, the Jesus follower, into that work. So how are you doing? Are you answering the call? Or are you just a little too busy today? The mission of God is not something we arrive at. It's something, it's a direction that we need to continually move in. The story of Jonah, you know, it's, it's, it's really a story about the very heart of God and what he is already doing. He just uses Nineveh and the prophet as just a way to get his story out there, just to reveal to his people what his heart is. It's a story of the scandalous love of the creator of all things for all people. It's a story of him calling his people, us, calling us to a place of sacrifice, a place of inconvenience, and a place of discomfort. It's a story about his grace being way bigger than any sin that you can ever imagine. That's not license. It's a story ultimately about the cross where sin, grace, redemption all converge story of the cross where he kicks it all and hides it. 
God, I want to thank you for the story of Jonah. Thank you that it kind of leaves us hanging and it causes us to do our own work in our own heart. Lord, thank you that uh, the story about a guy and a fish can be just so revealing of your heart. Lord, I pray that you would instill in us even more today, every, everyone in this room, Lord, that they would receive an extra measure of the grace and mercy of God into their hearts, Lord, and not for themselves to keep, but it would just ooze from their pores, ooze from their life, just just be released in their words and in their actions out into the world, that we would be the people of God on mission with you in the work that you're already doing. Thank you. Love you. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.